I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7 and verse 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 2, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he, the centurion, heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And we're looking this evening at four essential components of saving faith. And we see them in this passage, reflected in the experience of this Roman centurion. Now we speak of conversion to God, of coming to know him and to walk with him. And we're repeatedly told in the scripture that conversion is something that you come to by faith. That means to say you cannot earn it. You cannot do anything to secure it from God. There is no set of religious duties or ceremonies, no ritual, no technique that you can indulge in and excel in which will secure for you the blessing of God and acceptance with him. We learn in scripture from cover to cover that we are an alienated race and we have offended him and we are cut off from him. And that the only way we can know him and find him is by faith, actually by grace, through faith. We have to trust him and believe in him and then by grace, that is to say unearned, undeserved, the blessing of conversion is fully bestowed and given. But what exactly is this? What is this faith? What does it mean? What are its uh, elements or parts? And there are broadly four. And we see them here, very simply reflected. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Capernaum. Uh, in those days, a very pretty town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. A lot of uh, small fishing companies had their headquarters there. It was on a major trade route, so there was trade and money to be had there. It was quite a centre, and it was a garrison town for the Roman occupation. And in this particular town, well, there was a, a garrison of how many soldiers, we don't know, at least a hundred, because there was a centurion there. A centurion, I suppose we would call him today a captain, except that a Roman centurion was not a commissioned officer in the Roman system. But you had to start there if you were qualified and you had the money and you were a freeman as a Roman citizen and you wanted a military career, uh, well, you went in the lower, one of the lower ranks was that of centurion. But some centurions commanded 
not just a hundred, but two or three hundred men. And there's certain grounds for thinking that this particular centurion would have had two or three hundred in a major place like Capernaum. He answered to the regional governor for the Romans, who was Herod Antipas. So he was the paymaster. Sent from Rome, and after a successful period with this particular company, then maybe he would be promoted. Maybe he would go up, and he would be uh, in charge of a more typical unit, 480 people. And... uh, he would have in charge of him a, a tribute, these people a tribune, the equivalent of our major, and so on. And from that, he'd go up. The Greek translation of that is a kiliarch, which is a little odd because that strictly means a thousand people, but that's the name in the Greek New Testament given to this, to a 480 group. Well, that's on the side. This centurion was well-born. We can assume that because he had money. He was a most unusual man. He'd come to a position in his life where he really wasn't satisfied with Roman polytheism. This was dangerous for him, actually, because uh, if he wanted to climb high in the Roman forces, he should be a very enthusiastic polytheist. To leave the Roman faith and to take an interest in the Jewish faith with its one God, one true and living God, well, that would be dangerous for him. Yet he was obviously a thinking man. I would think a cultivated man. We know he had money because he had sponsored the Capernaum synagogue. The elders of the town say this in his favor. He's built us a synagogue, they say. That's all very unusual. So before we start, really, we can consider this particular Roman centurion as having become very dissatisfied with paganism, with polytheism, a thinking person working in a Jewish region in Judea. He'd come to value and consider the things that were taught in the ancient scriptures. And he'd begun to believe that there was one true and living God. And he was a supporter of the synagogue. His understanding was probably limited. He didn't understand what we're going to be talking about tonight yet. I think he came to understand it. But he was a thinking person. He thought about the one true God, the creator of all things. Is it possible to know him? Is it possible to have his blessing or his power in your life? Is it possible to have meaning and purpose? Well, how many of us have got even this far? Is this before his great experience that we've begun to think? Because the conversion starts here. You begin to think. You begin to wonder. You begin to see through this world and all its enthusiasm for merely material things. And it's confining itself only to the here and now, the things you can touch, feel, possess. You see through it, and you see all the sinfulness and the wretchedness and the selfishness and the exploitation 
and the unfairness, many good things you see, but you see wherever human beings tread is always a seam of rottenness and corruption and trouble and disorder operating at the same time. And you begin to wonder, have you come to this point? What if it isn't true that I've been brainwashed to believe that everything has come about by a sheer accident? Even beautiful things, ordered things, so much perfection in creation, all this was a sheer accident. As a result of accident after accident, you can get natural selection, which creates wonderful music and wonderful art, artistry. You began to wonder about these things. Is this credible? This view that is pushed upon us from all directions these days in our modern atheistic society. And you're dissatisfied with the idea that your life is nothing. That one day it'll be gone and you're forgotten and there's no life beyond, there's no more to it. There'll be another great big bang and the whole of humanity will be destroyed and all the particles will fly apart and everything that's ever happened in history will have been utterly, utterly pointless. And you don't want to believe that anymore. You think it doesn't add up. I need an explanation. I need a purpose. I need a meaning. I begin to feel there's a creator. There's a great designer. I begin to feel that this great testimony of people who believe in God has substance. And so many things have got you thinking and wondering. You're against the tide. So many friends will say, what are you thinking about? What are you talking about? That's nonsense. Forget it. But it's getting hold of you. Well, that's how it was, I'm sure, with this man to commit himself to taking such an interest in the Jews among whom he served, or over whom he served. That's the beginning. But it brings us to the four great ingredients of faith. Would he find God? Would he be converted to God? If so, how would it happen? What could take place? And it begins here in verse 2. A certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Servant is the word used. It translates the Greek for slave. That's what he was, a slave. And the more refined servant is in our version but it translates slave, except in one place in this passage. Down in verse 7, the man says, sending a message to Christ, say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. And the Greek word translated servant there is a different word. It isn't slave, it's boy. Boy. So what he says is, my boy shall be healed. So it's a slave boy, we discover. Same word is employed in Matthew's Gospel. 
It's a slave boy. Now, that's abhorrent, of course. And we're not in favor of that, but we're repeating here what was in Roman society. This man had a, a batman or a servant who was a slave boy. And he obviously was very taken by him and very fond of him. His personality, his character and his eagerness to work and so on was such that he treated him more like a son. There were some amazing stories in history about uh, slave boys to Roman centurions and uh, higher officers who saved their lives, who took the arrow for them, who rushed in the way when a sword thrust was coming at them. So some of these youngsters were very devoted and very plucky. Nothing that I say here is in favor of slavery. I'm just telling you the facts. And he was very dear to him, his slave boy. But this was the need. He was sick, desperately sick. Actually, you're told a little more in Matthew's Gospel. You are told that his trouble was that he'd become paralyzed. But it was in such a form that he was tormented with pain. So it was a complex condition that he was in. And he was ready to die. And some of the doctors in their comments have suggested that this particular paralytic lad was at a stage where he couldn't breathe. And he could almost die at any time. And it was tormenting him. Well, that's a supposition. But this is the need. He's a centurion. He's wealthy enough to sponsor the local synagogue. He must have tried all medical help at the time. And in those days, nothing could help. His money was worthless. His rank was worthless in this matter. His authority, the fact that he was a proud man who served the conquering Roman nation, served the empire, all that was worthless. His need was so great. He just wanted the healing of his slave boy. And the first element of his faith in God was need. A burning, deep and great need. That's what brought him. And he heard of Christ. That's what it tells us. And he heard of this, well come on to this, this great healer who healed all kinds of people and had even raised the dead and healed the lepers. And he longed to get to him. He, he was in Capernaum. Christ made Capernaum his base when he was in Galilee. He was there. He had good intelligence, this Roman centurion, with his business to know what was going on. Somebody drawing great crowds, that was his business. Is this some sort of insurrection? Is it, is it against the emperor, Caesar? No, it's a, it's a prophet who they say is Messiah, who is a healer, who has wonderful power. Then I must get a message to him. He can help my slave boy. So a great need came to him, and it does to us. 
when you begin to really thirst for God and you need him and you hear this message and you know that you need to be converted, you need to lay yourself at his feet, you need to come to Christ, you've got a need and it drives your inquiring spirit and you come. Well, then that's the first part of faith. God can help me in my spiritual need. He can give me a new life. He can forgive me. He can set me on the road to heaven. He can make me one of his children. He can change me entirely. I need him. I cannot do any of this for myself. No one can help me, only Christ. That's the first part of faith, your very great need. And that brings us then to a second part of faith, and it's this, a new view of Christ. He heard of Christ, he sent for him, and he has now a new view of him. He can help me. What does he base that on? Well, Christ's record. He's a healer. He charges no money. He he goes about as a relatively poor man, followed by his disciples. He does astonishing things. The crowds gather. He's not in it for himself. He's not in it for money. He has such character and kindness. This is astonishing. This is amazing. He's pretty amazed at Christ and he's increasingly sure he can meet his need. He fulfills the prophecies, so some of the Jews say, all the ancient prophecies, and there are so many of them, predict the coming of the Messiah, what he would be like, what he would do, how he would carry himself, how people would respond to him, and he fulfills them all. His power, his kindness, he heals so often just as a word, word, his teaching, his parables. Increasingly, the more he heard, the centurion had an entirely new view of Christ. And then he heard of his, and I've mentioned this, his healing of lepers. But that meant a great deal to him because Well, he might have thought to himself, I'm a Roman. I'm a despised conqueror. What will he do for me? Will he help me? Oh, but he heals lepers. And in the society of those days, they were the outcasts, the lowest of the low. The outcasts from the temple and so on. And if he would help them, maybe he'll help me. I'm trying to read his mind. He had a new view of Christ. This is the second element of faith. You have a need and you begin to realize who Christ is. Not a man, but the eternal Son of God who came to redeem sinners. The God-man, the Savior of the world. And you begin to see it and grasp it. Because these two elements of faith you'll need, when you come to him, bring your need to him. 
and state it. Honor him for who he is, the all-powerful, holy, eternal Son of God. And then there's a third element to faith, and it's this. He had not only a new view of Christ, he suddenly felt his sinfulness, that he was not fit and not worthy. And this is so important. Look at it here in this passage. Verse 6, the elders come, they say, come and heal this man's servant. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. I am not worthy. Yes, but the elders, when they told Christ about him, they said he was worthy for whom he should perform this healing. And they give two reasons why he was worthy. He loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. He is worthy, they said. But he said of himself, I am not worthy. That's new. He's come to see his utter unworthiness to receive anything from the hand of God. He's come to grasp that he's a sinful man. And this is a vital element of faith. You can't have faith for salvation without realizing I'm a sinner. What about us, friends? There'll be some of us here, and you never thought about this. Not for a moment do you see yourself as a sinner. Oh, I do some wrong things. I, I don't behave entirely as I should. But I'm not a sinner. And you, Christian people, you talk about... God is judge and I should be punished for sin. You've never thought about it. Of course we're sinners and far from God. While there's a capacity for good in us, so some good things, some good ideas, some good intentions, isn't there so much pride ruling us? So much is decided to serve our pride what shall I do? Well, what will people think of me? How shall I look? How will it serve me? What will I get? Isn't it in everybody? Pride and deceitfulness, yes. Lies, lies, white lies, excuses that aren't true, boastful lies, exaggerating one's attributes and capacities and experiences, lies all over the place. Things that are appalling to God run right through us. Hostility to other people and hatred, which is, according to Moses and Christ, in the murder family of sins. All these things are in us. And we haven't paid homage to God and we haven't worshipped him, and we haven't thanked him for life and gifts and abilities, and we haven't honoured him 
and we haven't wanted to inquire after him and we haven't studied him and we've even slandered him and we've cheated him we've taken his air and his food and his power and his energy and we've ignored him and rejected him of course we're sinners and it's not until we see that Christ is coming under my roof thinks the centurion I can't let him into my house it's a noble house it's one of the best houses in Capernaum it's a stone house it's a military commander's house it's built to magnify and elevate Rome I can't let him in here I'm a sinner and he's the holy one of God And this is a vital part of faith. I have a great need that only Christ can meet. I need to be converted. I come to him and I understand who he is, the eternal son of God who came from heaven to earth to suffer and to die for sinners who would repent so that he could save them and change them. I am a sinner And I need free salvation and grace, which only he can give me. And only Christ can save you. Only Christ can change you. Look at what you need. You need forgiveness. Who has the power to wipe your record clean? To forgive everything you've ever said. Everything you've ever thought that is wrong. Everything you've ever done. And the state which I am. I am a sinner. Who can wash it all away? Make the charred sheet blank? Only Christ, because he suffered and died on Calvary to bear the punishment on behalf of all who come to him. The suffering of Christ, we read of the term in the scripture, the deep things of God. The sufferings of Christ part of the deep things of God inexplicable to us. Christ suffered infinitely more than the pain of hanging on that cross, of being lashed and nailed. Infinitely more. There were even three hours of darkness to signify that his sufferings cannot be understood by the human mind as he took the eternal punishment due to millions and millions of people in the space of six hours including separation from the father he bore it all away so that he would purchase the right to forgive us freely there is only one savior no religious system outside Christianity has a saviour who died a substitutionary atoning death for sinners, the Son of God who came for us. You come to him for forgiveness. There's one last thing, and I must close, that happened in this passage. One last element of faith, and it's this. He grasped the spiritual power of Christ to do things invisibly, spiritually. 
And he said in the message that he sent to Christ, verse 8, I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. He understood power and authority in a limited human way. I have office. I do not go myself to places of unrest, places of criminality, places that need the strong arm of Rome. I send a detachment. I send soldiers here and there, and they report back. I understand authority. Oh, Lord, he seems to say through the messengers, you have divine authority. You can just send a word from where you are. And my slave boy will be healed entirely. You have the power to change him. I see him now writhing on a bed, tormented by pain, unable to get up, near to death, written off by everyone in terrible anguish. But I know that at a word from a distance, he can be made new and rise up as though he'd never been sick and be entirely changed and entirely whole. He believed in the power of Christ. These are the four elements of faith. You bring a need and you state it to God. I need conversion. You believe in Christ, the eternal Son of God, the only Saviour who has suffered and died for sinners. That's the only way. You believe in these things with all your heart. You believe you're a sinner. You are fallen and you need salvation as a free gift. And you believe in his power to change you, to give you a new mind, a new outlook, to give you a new heart, new affections, new emotions, so that you love the things of God. Your mind will understand the scriptures, the explanations of God for everything. Your heart will love him. A new will a new determination. You'll get mastery of your character to a large extent and his help all through life's journey. Your conscience will be brought to life. Your soul will be changed and enlivened. You'll be a child of God. You'll be able to pray. You'll have answers to your prayers. You'll know him. He'll give you strength and power when you need it consolation and comfort when you need it. You are on the way to eternal glory. Those four elements of faith. Dear friends, this was the experience of this man with the healing of his slave boy. And it's the experience of us when we come to Christ for salvation. You need him, dear friends. If you never come to Christ... You need him. When you come to him in faith, believing in him, believing in your sinfulness, believing in what he's done on Calvary's cross to secure your pardon and forgiveness, believing in his power to transform you, and you sincerely ask him for his blessing, 
He will take you in his arms, make you his own, and change you and bless you. Let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and help us. Calm all that resistance which builds up in us through the brainwashing of an unbelieving world and from our own fallen hearts. Draw us to thyself and, O oh Lord, receive us and grant us thy salvation. We ask it in the name of our Saviour. For his sake. Amen.